You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. What a mess. I opened up my trusty password manager app this morning to fiddle with the settings on one of my accounts. I've been using LastPass for about five years now to manage all of my personal, family, and professional online account relationships. My experience is probably similar to yours. During that five-year stretch, LastPass has accumulated over 500 passwords of mine. Admittedly, some of those accounts were one-and-done relationships, meaning I used the account once and never touched it again. But still... That's a lot of passwords to remember. And since we're sharing, some of those passwords aren't that good. I'm not admitting to having any 12345s or I love yous in there, but some of them, let's just say, don't meet the requirements of the NIST Digital Identity Guidelines special publication. And it isn't like I don't know that some of those passwords are bad. I mean, LastPass flags them with helpful warnings like, you know, that password you're using for the Critical Role website, my favorite Dungeons & Dragons website of all time, is really dumb. Or you haven't changed that password in like 15 years. You might consider upgrading, you incompetent poser. And you're the biggest poser of them all. Aren't you squinty? Oh, and by the way, It's a really dumb password, too. Oh, no! Okay, okay. Those aren't actual LastPass error messages. But when I read them, that's the guilt I'm hearing in my head. And yes, I get imposter syndrome just like everyone else. I'm just saying that if a 30-year security veteran like me can't come up with NIST-certified passwords for all the accounts I need to do business with on the Internet when I know better then what hope does my 80-year-old mother-in-law hanging 10 on her iPad as she surfs the web have with hers? There's got to be a better way. You know what? It turns out that there is. It's called two-factor authentication or multi-factor authentication, and the concept has come a long way since it was invented back in the mid-1980s. That means that it's time to break out the Rick the Toolman toolbox and figure out how multi-factor authentication works today. My name is Rick Howard, and I'm broadcasting from the CyberWire's secret Sanctum Sanctorum studios located underwater somewhere along the Patapsco River near Baltimore Harbor. And you're listening to CSO Perspectives, my podcast about the ideas, strategies, and technologies that senior security executives wrestle with on a daily basis. As I mentioned in the single sign-on episode, we have Dr. Fernando Corbato to thank for the invention of the password when he was a student at MIT in the early 1960s. It was a stopgap measure to prevent users on a mainframe from poking around each other's files and to limit mainframe computer time. 
Fun fact, Corbato stored the passwords in a text file, which probably provoked one of the first computer hacks ever. Alan Schur, working on his PhD at the time, found the unprotected text file, stole passwords from other students, and was able to grant himself more computer time. You gotta love those MIT nerds. In those early days, password authentication was weak, but it wasn't a major problem. Computer use was limited to government projects and academic research and development. There weren't a lot of people using network computers back then. But by the 1980s, with the ARPANET slowly morphing into the Internet, the computer user population started to grow, and the community needed more robust authentication methods for important systems. In the mid-1980s, Security Dynamics Technologies was the first company to create a hardware token device that created one-time passwords, or OTPs, for authentication. And in 1995, AT&T patented the idea of two-factor authentication. They said that to identify an authorized user, any system needed to check at least two of three factors. Something they have, like a smartphone, something they are, like a fingerprint, or something they know, like a password. But the early systems were clunky, hard to manage, and only used in environments that needed the most robust security. Later, when the smartphone started to emerge in the mid-2000s, that started to change. All of a sudden, everybody had a second factor in their pocket. That led to all kinds of innovation. So I thought I would invite a guest to the CyberWire hash table to see if we could figure out just exactly what is the current state of two-factor authentication. I'm joined by Chris Hoffman, the editor-in-chief of the fantastic website, How to Geek, a site that I uh, watch every day. It's in my daily rotation of things to read. So, Chris, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much. Great to be here. So, Chris, you've been in the editor-in-chief at How to Geek for over three years now, but you've been doing tech writing for well over a decade. And here at the CyberWire, we're always interested in how people became who they are. So, what was your path to get there? How did you become editor-in-chief of your famous website? Oh, wow. That's a great question. I mean, I, I've always been a bit of a computer geek. I was always really interested in technology. And also from a young age, I really kind of enjoyed writing. And uh, I just at a certain point, you know, realized like, hey, I could just start writing about technology online and just kept doing it and kept doing that and, and just built more of an audience and built more experience and eventually just rose up through the ranks and took over the whole website. It's a common theme to most cybersecurity professionals that writing is uh, a thing they have to be good at just to be able to explain things that they know that other smart people don't know about. So I'm glad to hear that's a major part of how you got to be uh, who you are. All right. So, yeah. all right. So today we are talking about two-factor authentication, and we've come a long way from the original one-time password token device created by a company called Security Dynamics in the mid-1980s. And when I was doing some preliminary research on the history and evolution of this two-factor authentication stuff, I ran into your excellent article that you wrote back in 2017 about the various ways you can use two-factor authentication. And there's going to be a link in the show notes for those interested, and I highly recommend it. But I thought instead of me summarizing the article, I would just bring you on and we can discuss them. So I want to start with describing the various methods that are out there today and at the end, we can try to rate them on a scale from least desirable to most desirable. How does that sound? Yeah, sounds great. All right, so let's start with SMS verification. 
How does that work? I think this is the one that everyone has used really yeah. at this point. I don't even know if people think of it as a two-factor authentication. It's it, it just, you know, if you're a geek, you're in a two-factor authentication. But if you're just anyone using any technology, your bank, like you're going to get the SMS verification. You know, when you sign in with your password, you know, especially your bank, you'll get a you texted a code to your phone and then you'll have to enter that code. So this is great because if someone gets your password, they also need to have a code sent to your phone. So if you have a malware on your computer, if you have a keylogger, if you are one of the unfortunately many, many people who reuse passwords and then it, it, it comes on a leak. And, what are you saying yeah. exactly? I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, though, unfortunately, reusing passwords is a major problem because, you know, it, it, it comes out in a leak and there's a whole leak database. So you have criminals that just start trying to just automatically, okay, I'll try this username and password or this email and password combination and all these other websites and they get into people's accounts. And that's how so many accounts are hacked, as they say. With, with the SMS code, like if someone tries to get into your account, they, they need the code sent to your phone. So SMS verification is great, honestly. I don't want to be one of those people who slams it. It is definitely the least secure type of two-factor authentication. However, it's still much better than nothing at all. So I think oftentimes in technology and security, especially, there's this idea of the perfect being the enemy of the good or just say people so say all so SMS true. verification is terrible. People like SMS verification is much, much, much better than nothing at all. So I agree with that. So it's basically you log into a website, some account somewhere, say Twitter, and then the, the Twitter website sends you a text message to your phone. You put that code into the login screen and that's how you get in. So two factors there. All right, and then email verification is very similar, except we're not using text messaging to do it. We're just using uh, your email client to do it. Is there anything major we need to talk about there about the difference between the two? Not really. I mean, I think with both of them, you, you end up in a scenario of like, okay, well, how secure is your email or, or how secure is your SMS? How secure is your phone number? And this may not be an issue for the average person so much, but definitely there have been some high profile cases of social engineering. Someone goes to... Uh, let's say you have your phone number through uh, Verizon. Someone goes to Verizon customer service and says, I'm this person and I lost my phone. I'm going to need you to transfer my my uh, phone number to a new phone. And then they can get your SMS verification codes on their phone. So it is vulnerable to that kind of uh, social engineering, which is a problem. And same thing for email. If, you know, how secure is your email? If, if you have, have malware on your computer or something like that. So both are, are vulnerable in, in that sense. So we'll talk about those in a second and rate how good they are compared to these other ones because these other ones you mentioned in your article are are more well thought out, I would say. And the first one is, I'm calling it Authenticator Soft Tokens, the Google Authenticator app or something you can get from ID.me or if you're a gamer, Blizzard's Battle.net and even LastPass, yep. the password manager app has an authenticator. So explain how these work. Yep, and you you know you could definitely go on like Steam has the built-in thing. Uh, yep, we were yep. like like Authy, which also uses like Google Authenticator and stuff. Like One Password also has that built-in. And what it's doing is it's generating the code on your phone. It's actually using basically a a little seed token that that goes in the app, and it generates something called a TOTP. Or I think it's TOTP. Yeah, it's called time-based one-time passwords, TOTPs. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I was about to say time-based one-time password, but where's the B? Right. So it's called TOTP. <laughs> so it's generating a one-time password based on this seed, and it's generally good for like 30 seconds. If someone intercepts this, 
the code you type, they can't figure out like, oh, what's the code going to be 30 seconds from now? So right. you, you, you have that app on your phone and, and, and you use the app and there's not the same risk that, oh, like someone's going to go to Verizon or T-Mobile or AT&T. I don't mean to single out anyone or someone's going to somehow get into your email and they're going to be able to get the code. No, because they need the seed phrase that's in the app on your phone. So it's an internet engineering task force algorithm. So it's a standard, right? And the difference between, say, these authentication apps and, say, SMS authentication is there's no code being sent uh, in the clear, right? These things are being generated on your second factor phone. So by design, a little bit more secure. Uh, The next one is called push authentication. And various big Silicon Valley companies have been playing around with this. Google does it. Apple does it. Microsoft and Twitter does it. What's the difference between this and the Authenticator app? I think the Authenticator apps came around first and they were mostly adopted by geeks, I feel like. And <laughs> the, the kind of the app-based kind of push notification is it makes it easy for just the average person to set up. If, if you have the Gmail app on your phone, you don't have to install Google Authenticator. And you know, If you try to sign into your Google account, it will send you a push notification just like you get a new email to your phone and saying, hey, is this you? Are you trying to sign in? And if you tap it and say, like, yeah, this is me, then you, you can sign in. So it uses the fact that like, why do we have to, you know, do go through a whole two-factor authentication thing and set up a code? Like, we already have the Gmail app on your phone, or if you have an iPhone, you already have the Apple software. If you were, I don't know what my app, I'm sure Microsoft does it through some app, uh, or t- Twitter does it, and the same thing, you know, is this you? Like, it, it just asks you in the app. So it's very easy for people to set that up. So the Google the way that Google does it, no codes are sent or needed. You just say, yes, it's me, when they send you that push notification, and that's how you get in. Apple's a little bit different. They do send you a code, but it's the same idea. But they don't use an app for it. It's just coming through on the iOS operating system, which I thought is interesting. But still the same idea, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's the same idea. It, it does give you that code to confirm. Like, there, there's always the risk. If it pops up, is this you? And, and then when people say, yeah, yeah, you know, go away message, right? This is me. They want you to say, like, okay, this is this is actually me. You have to enter the code and, and uh, confirm that people don't accidentally you know, allow access to their account. So the last one on your list is something called universal second factor authentication. And this this is the new kid on the block. Some of the big players have gotten behind this new standard. Uh, Explain what this is. Honestly, there's been a long road to this. I mean, anyone who was into this heard it was hearing about a YubiKey, you know, years ago. They basically had a, I guess, proprietary solution. And and then it became FIDO UTF. And then now it's FIDO2 is actually the next thing. And that's the what everyone is jumping on now. And there's so much uh, energy and development around FIDO2. But the idea is that there will be a USB key that you put in your computer and you carry it with you. I mean, it can be a physical token. It can be not a physical token. You know, originally it was very much about like a USB key that you plugged in. Then we have the NFC, so you can tap on your phone if it doesn't have a port. And then we have the Bluetooth. And then now what's happening is there's a lot of talk about basically building it directly into the operating system. I think is, is what's going on right now with FIDO2. You know, what if it was built into Android, Mac, iPhone, Windows, and, and basically have this secure key that's managed by your device that will then helps you log in. And what's really cool about FIDO and UTF is it actually checks to make sure that you're logged into the correct one. So, you know, if you if you are logging in, it, it, it checks to say like, hey, are you actually logging into Facebook.com? Because if you're not logging in, I'm not going to send the, the two-factor authentication code. Because that then prevents there from being a man-in-the-middle attack where someone says, I'm Facebook.com, give me a two-factor authentication code, and then you give it, and then they pass it through to Facebook, and they get in as you like, no, there's that, there's that check almost if you're using a password manager. But one of the cool things about using a password manager, even if you know all your passwords by heart, which 
I don't know how people can with if you want to use the <laughs> unique passwords everywhere. But one of the cool things about using a password manager is it will only autofill the password if you're on the correct website. So if you're on some some fake website pretending to be Google, it won't autofill because it's like this is not Google.com. So that's another cool thing with uh, the web authentication and uh, the FIDO2 stuff is it is confirming you're on the correct website before doing that. So let's talk about that, right? The UTF standard, it's generating asymmetric keys so that the website and the token have unique relationship to each other. That's how they dis- discover if you're on the right website or if you have the right token. Nothing else can happen unless those things match. So that's the really cool thing about it. And what you mentioned too, there's a couple of different versions of this. You could have the USB key, like I use a YubiKey in my own laptop for my own professional stuff. So that plugs right into the laptop via the USB port. But what I think is even more interesting is the NFC stuff, the near-field communication devices. And these are the things that I've been using at my local grocery store on my phone in my wallet app. I don't have to have my credit card with me anymore. I can just move my phone close to the the NFC reader, and it, it validates everything, and, and I can use my credit card that way. So without having to plug in anything, which I think is very interesting. You can get a key that has USB and it also has NFC, so you can plug it into your laptop and use it that way, and you can tap it on your phone and use it that way. Let's be honest, right? The concept of having to go buy a like physical USB key or little device they carry with you and use to sign in is very kind of geeky and is in mass markets. And I'll lose that one. If I had to put a little key on my keychain, I'm, I'm going to lose that in a couple of weeks. So that doesn't work right. for me. But I'll, I'm not going to lose my phone. Even I am responsible enough not to lose that thing. So I think that's where all the stuff should go to, right? Yeah, it's going to become kind of app-based authentication where you'll sign in and it'll ping your phone or something. It'll sing next to you like, hey, are you actually trying to sign into this pool? They're using Bluetooth just to confirm like, okay, is your phone near your laptop or device that you're signing into it? And it's not just someone is five states away trying to sign in. You see the message, you accidentally cap allow and uh-oh, you know, what happened? Like they're confirming, you know, everything is, is working as intended there. So the NFC is a protocol, all right? It helps two devices communicate wirelessly when they are placed right next to each other. And the protocol says it's about four inches is the range. So it's like yep. I said, using your mobile device when you, you walk through uh, an airline, you know, check station. You know, that's, how, that's how your mobile boarding pass works. And then devices with NFC hardware can establish communications with other NFC-equipped devices and then they had this other thing, which I really I find fascinating, called NFC tags. And these tags are unpowered NFC chips that when you get into proximity of a real NFC device, it gets power from that device. That is just phenomenal. And that protocol relatively quickly developed by those Silicon Valley partners in the FIDO Association. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's very cool when you think about it. You know, you take a lot of stuff for granted, but yeah, it is like a little USB like tiny little device, it doesn't have a battery, but you know when you hold it up to you, it's just like your credit card. Like right. if you have an NFC powered credit card, it, it doesn't need a battery, but it can like communicate with that uh, when it gets near a you know power device, and that is very cool. All right, so we have SMS verification, email verification, authenticator soft tokens with authenticator apps. We got push authentication, and now this universal second factor. So, Chris, let's talk about the relative merits of each. We've kind of dipped into it a little bit. I mean, just set the stage for you. If I were to put all those methods that we just talked about on a 100-mile road between two great cities of, oh, my God, this is not secure at all, to nirvana on the other side, we solve security, what would be the method closest to OMG and why? What is the least secure of the authentication methods that we just said? 
Well, the least secure is definitely, you know, SMS or potentially email verification. That being said, I, I hate to say that because if you're not using anything, please like at least use SMS or email verification. It's so much better than nothing. It's a straight upgrade. Yeah, I would put email verification slightly less secure than SMS. And and the reason is, is that your email account is unique to the user, like a password. But, you know, you can access it from anywhere. It's not something you have on your person or some kind of biometric. So it's kind of like having a second password. You know, it's better than not having any, but not by much. But then again, it's probably okay for everyday things like logging into the library or whatever. Uh, as long as you're not managing some super state secret, email verification and SMS verification are probably okay, right? Oh, yeah, exactly. But of course, the, the, one of the problems is that uh, I'm sure everyone has seen, you know, SMS verifications used by banks and you know, utilities and the government and all these really important services. And it's kind of funny. I mean, I don't know, it's a little unfortunate, but if, you know, the, the newer methods are generally more supported by like Google and gaming services and tech companies and, and on, on all that kind of very online stuff. And it's like, well, I don't know, like, I wish I had, you know, stronger two-factor on my bank account than I do yeah. on my Google account, you know? That's a good point. So you mentioned before the, the, some of the problems with SMS verification, and uh, you were describing one. It's called SIM swapping, and and they basically the bad guys social engineer your phone company into moving your phone number to their bad guy phone, and that's the same process that you're going to use next year when you buy that new iPhone 14 model. So when that happens, every time you try to log in, the SMS code would be sent to the bad guy's phone instead of yours, and then they could use it to log into your account. And that's been seen in the wild, so we know that's going on. And then the second one demonstrated in the wild also is when, you know, nefarious governments intercept SMS codes through their normal signals intelligence collection process, right? So that, you know, in other words, spying, right? So we know that's going on. And then the third way is when bad guys compromise the victim's SS7 telephone network and reroutes the code to their bad guy phone. For those who don't know, SS7 is the signaling system 7 standard that defines how public switch telephone networks work. Some bad guys can, you know, get in there and intercept your codes. Having said all that, we were talking about this before. SMS and email is probably fine for run-of-the-mill internet use. But if you're, you have material information you're trying to protect, or if you're a spy, Maybe steer clear of SMS authentication. Is that a, are you following me on that? Absolutely, it really is. You know, everything in security is about your threat model. So, you're just an average person. It's not a big deal if you have five hundred million dollars in cryptocurrency and you have, have it protected by just SMS authentication. Like, reconsider that because you know you're a pretty serious target for criminals to, to target if they can get through that. So the third one I'd put on the list after SMS authentication is the Authenticator Soft Token, these Authenticator apps. This is pretty good, right? Uh, this is way closer to you know Nirvana on our little uh, roadmap we were talking about before. It's still susceptible to man-in-the-middle attacks if the user is tricked into entering the code into some bad guy-controlled phishing site. The attack sequence is easier to do than, say, compromising that SS7 network we were talking about. But this is definitely in the skill set of the modern-day cyber criminal. In order for it to be reliable, though, the attacker has to grab the code and log into your account before the authenticator changes it. So timing is critical, but it doesn't make the attack impossible, just way more difficult. Do you agree that it's third on our list of being the best secure, but probably way better than the other two? Yeah, definitely way better than the other two. It does have that 
risk of it's more susceptible to man in the middle attacks because it's generally not confirming are you on the correct website. And then it also has the problem of let's say you drop your iPhone in a river, you get a new iPhone, you have the same phone number. How do you get the the codes from your app? So unfortunately, um, generally, and this is going to be a curveball, but people don't focus on this enough. Generally, there's a way to get be like, oh, I forgot my, I, I lost my app. And generally, the way that they do that is they say, okay, we'll send you an SMS or an email code. So unfortunately, <laughs> even if you use the more strong methods, often it's possible to get around them. And it, it has to be because there's not really a good way for recovery to work if, if for an average person that's using this and loses a thing. So, you know, the Google actually has a, a super secure program kind of intended for journalists and, 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 and it uses a key and there's like no way around it. And But generally the way those, those things works is if you lose your key, if you lose it, you lose your data. That's a really good point. It works great if everything is working fine, but if there's some issue because you've lost your phone or you've screwed up somewhere, that's the hole in the security infrastructure that the bad guys can walk through. That's really interesting. I hadn't, hadn't thought of it like that. The next one is the push authentication. This is even better. Victims have observed bad guys sending notification flooding attacks to their, to their phones. You were mentioning this before. It's a nuisance attack. They just keep sending these push notifications and the victim just gets tired of swiping left or whatever. And they finally just say, yes, yes, it's me. For crying out loud, leave me alone. And then that's how the bad guys get in. So that's possible. I don't know if I've heard of that much in the wild. I'm sure it's possible. I'm sure it happens. It's almost a good thing because if you see that kind of thing, you think, oh, someone's trying to get access to my account. I better go change my password. Those kinds of attacks are perfect for a victim like me because, you know, I'm not paying attention or I get busy and I'm just like, leave me alone, leave me alone. I'll push it. Be quiet. So, yes, I would be susceptible to that. <laughs> and then the last one that's uh, closest to the Nirvana in our roadmap, all right, is the UTF authentication. If you have serious security requirements compared to just surfing the net, this is the way to go, right? Absolutely. If you have a, a, a ton of cryptocurrency that, that you can't part with and you want to <laughs> be sure it's secure or you're a journalist or someone who's really, really important and potentially a target, it's really important to, uh, you know, protect yourself with that type of thing. And I think the USB keys actually do work pretty well. And I think I, it's really exciting that kind of thing is being used as the basis for the future for kind of everyone, the more kind of mass market and easily adoptable system that'll work through all your devices with Microsoft, Apple, Google getting on board. Well, the problem today, though, is that the solution is not widely adopted and, and still maturing. If FIDO is the alliance. It's called Fast Identity Online. They're the standards body that's pushing the UTF authentication technologies, right? But according to the 2021 hype cycle chart for identity access management by Gartner, Gartner puts the FIDO Alliance's efforts as still traveling down the trough of disillusionment, but estimates two to five years before it reaches the plateau of productivity. I think that's about right. I expect to see more and more people glomming onto this, security people and tech people first, but then the grandmas of the world will start getting it. I think two to five years is probably right. I, I really hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think I think we have good reason to be hopeful that that is the case this time. All right, Chris. Well, good stuff. Thanks for doing this for us. So that's Chris Hoffman, the editor-in-chief of the fantastic website, How to Geek. Chris, thanks for coming on the show and explaining this stuff to us. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. Call me crazy, but I don't think that the number of passwords that LastPass will be managing for me in the next decade will go down. With the Internet of Things growing widely and 5G networks just over the horizon for common use, the volume of accounts we will all have to manage in our personal and professional lives will just continue to grow. Authenticator soft tokens, push authentication, and U2F will be in our lives for the foreseeable future. 
and maybe somewhere along the road between OMG and Nirvana, we might just get rid of Dr. Kobito's stopgap measure from the 1960s altogether. And that's a wrap. One last thing. I wrote a companion essay for this show, as I do for all the shows. But at the end of this one is a small timeline of two-factor authentication, history, and evolution. You can find the link in the show notes. And I want to thank Chris Hoffman, the editor-in-chief of the How to Geek website, for sitting down at the CyberWire hash table and helping us understand how two-factor authentication works. Next week, I will be doing another Rick the Toolman episode, this time on software-defined perimeter. You don't want to miss that. And as always, if you have thoughts about this week's show or any thoughts in general, send them to csop at thecyberwire.com. That's C-S-O-P, the at sign, thecyberwire, all one word, dot com. The Cyberwire CSO Perspectives is edited by John Petrick and executive produced by Peter Kilpie. Our theme song is by Blue Dot Sessions, remixed by the insanely talented Elliot Peltzman, who also does the show's mixing, sound design, and original score. And I am Rick Howard. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this preview of CSO Perspectives, be sure to subscribe to CyberWire Pro and get access to the rest of this episode, as well as all past seasons of CSO Perspectives ad-free. And you all know I love getting rid of the ads. Visit thecyberwire.com slash CSO Pro. That's thecyberwire.com slash CSOPRO to explore the many benefits of CyberWire Pro and to subscribe. Imagine a world where you're always one step ahead of cyber threats, where your defenses are impenetrable because you see what others don't. Welcome to Team Cymru's Threat Intelligence Solutions. With real-time access to the world's largest threat intelligence data ocean, they enable you to turn the tables on attackers. Transform your security from reactive to proactive through accelerated threat hunting and incident response, made possible through automation. Empower your team with visibility and insights to start defending your organization like never before. Team Cymru. Be the hunter, not the hunted. Learn more at team-cumry.com slash cyberwire. That's team-cymru.com slash cyberwire.